when I think about what we discussed here today, like shortage of people, and then seeing the many examples that I that I could see 20 years ago about how like younger people can be super competent at their work, they may not have the same knowledge of risk, they may not have the same knowledge of contracts, but they're competent to do the work. So I'm trying to focus my guidance on those things, like where my experience helps de-risking the, the work for our customers, for oceaneering. At the same time, how can can I help accelerate the career of these young people that I'm I'm looking at? And I like I can think of four or five names of brilliant, brilliant people that work for us in Brazil that are probably 25, 24 years old. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your host, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. Today, we have Simao Silva, who is currently the Managing Director of Brazil for Oceaneering. He has spent over 20 years in the subsea sector of the offshore energy industry in a variety of leadership roles. Since joining Oceaneering in 2005, Samao has lived in several countries, including Brazil, Scotland, Azerbaijan, and the U.S. Samao studied engineering at the University of the State of Rio de Janeiro and holds a business administration degree from Aspen University. In addition, he is a certified project management professional, holds a certificate for entrepreneurship in emerging economies from Harvard University, and climate change from the University of Edinburgh. That's a lot of schooling, and we can clearly see how important education has been to, for Samao, and we'll dig a little bit into that throughout the podcast. Um, but more importantly, a little bit of personal background, which we really want to dig into as well, because everyone's very interested in the personal life of our guests. And so he's a dual career professional with a big family. He has three kids. His wife is also a successful executive in the energy industry, and they've been supportive of each other's ambitions and career from day one. And so, Samao, thank you for being here today. We can't wait to uh, find out more about your career journey. No, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And first of all, I'm a big fan, uh, really proud of what you do for the energy space, but also for the women in the industry. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that. And just like Marcel was saying in the beginning of the podcast, you know, your history and just even where you started is so interesting. And that's really where we want to start. We want to give the listeners an idea of like really where you grew up. So you actually grew up on the countryside of Brazil, um, spending a significant amount of time on your grandfather's farm. At the age of 12, you moved to Rio de Janeiro, where you started working. And I remember when you told me this, I was like, at 12 years old, you were working? Like, what could you have been doing? And by the age of 15, you were doing technical sales for your father, who was in sales for dental equipment business. Despite facing these challenges due to your young age, you really enjoyed the work. I couldn't even imagine selling dental equipment at age 15 and also be successful at it. It was, I think, just really cool to hear from you when we first met and we talked about your story. This allowed you to experience countless rejections very early on. People definitely didn't want to buy from you, but then you were able to convince them. And you also went to school. So balancing work and school, you attended school in the morning. And then after school, you went and you started selling equipment. How had this childhood experience really teach you kind of the skill set that you have today? And how did it shape your perspective? Given at such a young age, you were able to learn how to overcome the challenges of being told no multiple times. Right. So 
for disclosure, right? It wasn't like slavery type of work. I was <laughs> very light and relaxed. I was, you know, helping my father with his business. So I was learning more than, I think I was taking more value than I was delivering value to, to be fair. <laughs> but yeah, when I was, you know, 15, 16, then I was doing physically more work in the sales front. I would normally help him out on conferences and just, you know, stay there at a booth trying to sell things in general. And it was a good experience. It was hard because, you know, you don't bring a lot of credibility when you're young with you, but also not a lot of experience to articulate what you do properly. So it was definitely a big learning experience for me. And it did help throughout the career because you know, you've got to be really resilient to hear those. And also, I would say big takeaways, hard work is important. It doesn't really matter what you do. And in addition to that, hard work without a plan or a strategy doesn't add a lot more than just basic bed, right? So you can survive, you can buy food with it, but it's kind of hard to progress with a plan. And the more I grew up, I realized that working hard with a plan, with a strategy behind it, makes a, it's a big force multiplier to hard work. On that point of just working hard, this kind of continued throughout your entire life journey. And when you turned 18, you know, Brazil went through an economic crisis and your father's business struggled quite a bit during that time. And that kind of made you wonder, you know, what else can I get into during this time? And you had a friend who worked offshore and, you know, in the offshore services. And you decided that, hey, this looks like an interesting business, only gas seems to be a lot more stable than, you know, what my father was doing and maybe what you had in mind for your own career till that point. And, you know, in that same year, you decided to study civil engineering. And while studying the offshore work that you were doing was really starting to kick off and grow. And you decided to start your own business, which again is really interesting at 18 years old to take on that kind of risk. It's not your average 18 year old that's thinking about, hey, I want to start a business. So can you bring us back to that time? And what do you think maybe in your childhood gave you that like easiness to take risks and not shy away from it? Interesting enough, like in Brazil, there are not a whole lot of job opportunities out there. Still to this day, the unemployment number is pretty large. So everyone in the state of Rio, they look at the oil and gas business as being like the one place to be. Like everyone wants to work for oil and gas, which is quite a different perspective when you go to Europe or the US. So working offshore in Brazil is a big thing. It's positive. Everybody enjoys it. At least most of the people I work with, they enjoy it. And then at that time, I could see that I could make a living out of oil and gas, mainly on the support side through services. And that's how, how this started. On starting a business, so I had a friend that had started the business before, but he needed a partner. So that's how I joined him. And it was very interesting to come from entrepreneur family because of my father and having to deal with those experiences for several years, mainly through my teenagers, and then going to my own business and how can I apply a lot of what I learned through that process at the company was very helpful. So immediately, you know, I had a mindset of sales that my partner only had like a technical mindset. So that already made a difference in terms of, you know, planning sales, what type of sales staff we need. Uh, so it was a very interesting combination, but also the lack of knowledge about risk helped me a big deal. Because if today I had to take the same amount of risks, I would be very careful. But not having awareness of what exactly what we're getting into in terms of contracts wasn't too bad because our company was small enough. We needed the riskier business and that's how we grew. We did a lot of exciting stuff. And then when I look back and you know, I've learned a lot of what I still apply to, they have learned from that time, mm -hmm. uh, taking more risk, getting out there, getting to do the work nobody wants to do. Those are the things that added a lot of value to my early career when I had that startup. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was stressful though. Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. 
Did you know that Barrel has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Feral because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veral.com. Veral Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal. Yeah, I remember you telling me how stressful it was because y'all took on literally jobs that other service companies were not willing to take because of the amount of risk that was tied into it, which because of the risk-taking mindset that you had, y'all decided to go into the mining sector and take on this massive job. And this opportunity ended up with an offer from Oceaneering. What's interesting about this transition for you is you had this exciting upbringing where you were selling technical sales, selling with your dad at a young age, and then you decided to jump in and take this risk to start your own business. You're controlling your own business. It's just you and another partner and then whoever else that y'all eventually added as y'all grew. That Then you decided to take a step back and you're like, you know what? I think I want to work for a large corporation when Oceaneering had come to you and asked for you to come over to their team. But somebody like yourself that has been so used to not having to report really to anyone, it seems very like out of character to then decide I'm going to go to a very large politically driven company as most corporations are. But you decided to do that. And that kind of took a little bit of that stress that you had from running your own business off of you. But then at the same time, when you joined, you were like, this is very different. You know, there's controlling, there's processes, there's all this stuff that you're not used to. And you stepped out and you actually kind of went against what the process was on a certain proposal. And when you did this, it was a mindset shift for the company because you did something that most people don't do, which then ended up leading to a promotion. But I want you to take us back to this time and talk about how were you able to first decide to make such a large transition from a startup to a larger corporation to also what did you learn or what experiences from the startup did you take into Oceaneering that really made you stand out? That was a really busy time because after an only two or three years having that business, we went from two people to like 30 employees. And we're in seek of big projects because we couldn't pay the bill with just a small stuff anymore. That's how we end up with you know this mining deal where I remember I had to spend several days inside mining. So like you go in before the sunrise and you leave after it's dark. It was actually very depressing to have to spend so much time without seeing the sunlight and just driving to the mine. The conditions of the workers, our customers were not great too. So our employees were fine, but you could see the other people like safety wasn't a priority for them and things like that. So that combination of stresses has actually got me thinking like, is this really what I want to do my entire life? And then at about that time, Oceaneering had a offshore problem, and then they called and hired us to go fix it. I went there and you know, talked to them. We proposed a pretty interesting solution, got a job for my company. But after that job was delivered successfully, they, they offered me a job. And uh, I was looking around also to the people that was doing the same thing I was doing, the other, my competitors, a service business. And I was like, I couldn't see any business owner there that would have the type of career path that I was seeking. Mm-hmm. And then it was time to move to Oceaneering. It was a very interesting change. And I started up, you just do what you got to do. Right? You do everything. Like you don't have your own box. You just get mm-hmm. things done. 
And then when I got to Oceaneering, the person that hired me is still with Oceaneering, Wayne Betts. And I remember that I was a technical supervisor. That was my job. And then I had to do some sort of equipment inspection. And then for a customer, once the inspection was done, I wrote a report. You know, I started talking to supply chain. I built a commercial proposal, pretty much ready to send to the client. You know, estimated some margins and returns there. And I just brought it to my manager, say, here's the proposal ready to go to the customer. But his expectations that I'll deliver just a technical summary of what's wrong. It's a technical report. He didn't expect me to be working on the commercial front. So he got quite upset. Like, you know, this is not your job. Your job is just make sure the equipment is right. He's a good leader. So he opened it up, like, explain me what you've done. And after I walked him through all the steps, he realized that I could put a commercial proposal together with a reasonable mindset. And that helped me get my first promotion after just, you know, a couple months at the job. He said, okay, since you can do this now, this is your job too. And just <laughs> it. my old school. That was quite fun. I think bringing in that startup mindset or definitely the smaller company where you wear multiple hats is very valuable in a big organization to that point where you're not just like, oh, this is my job and this is all I do. It's you're that kind of person that takes on more just because you're used to just having to do it or else your business wouldn't survive. And so I think it's a great skill set to bring to a big corporation. You know, let's talk about 2014, big challenging market conditions for the entire industry. How was that point in your life and career? You had recently moved to the U.S. You had, you know, transferred there for the first time and you truly didn't have a big network, right? Houston's small niche. You have to have been there for a while, kind of break into that, you know, U.S. market. Can you tell us a little bit about how that was difficult? Maybe trying to meet with customers, trying to get ahead in your role. You're in a new country. You have to deliver. There's these high expectations of Samao who left Brazil and now is here. And so how did that work and what is the importance of building just a robust network in your professional career? Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest lessons that come with experience is how important your network is, professional and also the family side, make sure that you have support from both ends. And it was the first time I was taking on a commercial job with Oceaneering because up to that point, my jobs have been more technical project management type of work. And it was exactly on the time of when the industry changed. And then Oceaneering decided to do also a change in approach to have more technical people into the sales roles. So that's pretty much how I got into that job. But it was very difficult because my multicultural awareness wasn't there yet. And I was still thinking with the Brazil mindset, although I had spent some time in Europe by that time. So it was difficult to have a sales job, business development job in Houston on a time when nobody wants to spend any money. But luckily enough, the network I had up to that point internal, I'll say the internal equity I had at Oceaneering, that's what helped me the most because everybody understood the market was depression. But I could see that I had leadership support to continue to do my job, although the payback wasn't immediate. But the equity I built through the time up to that point is really what the network, support and trust is what got pushed past that point to get back to the good business times that we're living today. Can you give some advice on how you were able to grow your network in a new country and what kind of maybe what steps you took for those that are listening that maybe even are starting out in the oil and gas space and the first thing they need to do is start meeting people? Do you have any advice? Yeah, start internally. There's some strategy behind it. There's nothing deep, but like look to the people around you and see how they progress, how they connect, who they talk to. Also understanding that everybody's just a regular person. So you can go and talk to CEO and like really enjoy talking to our CEO, Rob Larson. You can go talk to a technician 
they all go home to their families, you know, at night. They all work to get the stuff they want to get, either being, you know, food or a fancy car. It doesn't really matter. So everybody's kind of wired the same. It's just the way they work, you know, or their ambition and, or the network they have that kind of sets them apart, really. But understanding the people around you and respecting them and putting an effort to connect with them on a personal level, it matters. You know, asking them about their family, their hobbies, what they like to do, their pets, whatever it is. I think that's a good way to start building a network with someone that's close to you, but you may not really know well. And in addition to that, there are plenty of organizations out there that can help with. So one I'm part of is the Energy Workforce and Technology Council. You're familiar with them. I mean, just they take on volunteers at any time. So if you raise your hand, say like, I'm here to volunteer, they'll take on board because they have so much work to do. That type of organization is a great uh, venue to get to know more people, expand your network, people that have similar jobs as you, people from higher levels. I would say I'll start there and meet the person next to you first, get to know them, why they're there at work. And then after that, to spend even further, reach out to organizations that, that you can interact with. I love that you talked about the energy workforce as that was a company, an organization that we connected with very early on. And they're a huge reason to why we have been doing this today. So that was a great plug-in for them. And that is a great organization to volunteer with. You know, you made some a lot of suggestions around internal and having that internal network. And for somebody like yourself, you really ask critical questions that challenge the organization. And sometimes that can come across negative. And sometimes people might perceive it in the wrong way. But you were able to spin it in a way that people actually trusted what you were saying. They utilized your feedback and they made changes. Can you talk to us about that delicate balance, ensuring that the questions that you're asking that are challenging the organization come off constructive rather than disruptive to those that are accepting that feedback? That's a tough one because every organization is different. So what could be a, you know, a challenging, constructive question at one organization may sound really different you know, at the years of another group. I can give you an example. When I went from Brazil to the UK, in Scotland, in Brazil, we had a really, really dynamic team that everybody kind of grew together. Because when I got there, the business was really small, Oceanair. When I left, we had, the business was almost 10 times larger. Because we grew together, we understood each other's intention from the start. And being able to ask a difficult question, it's easy because the other person knows you mean no harm. But as soon as I landed in the UK, to me, nothing changed. But when I landed in an environment where I didn't have the equity or the trust, and I was starting to ask some challenging questions, it definitely wasn't well received. So I had to get burned a few times to be able to realize that they first need to build this trust before I can get there. And through that, adjusting my questions to be a little bit more or less direct or more discovery questions to really find out what's going on. Because you may not know everything you think, you know, being able to adjust to the environment is a big deal. But in doubt, always ask questions around data. You know, what's the data telling you? And what's the feedback you get? And uh, put assumptions aside. Assumptions can be dangerous. They can help you when you really know your stuff, Mm -hmm. but they can be dangerous when you're navigating a new environment. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technip FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. 
Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now, back to the show. I think that's really good advice for all the listeners because this happens to quite a bit of us when we move for an international role and it takes time to build that trust and network that took you a long time to build before you left where you could be communicating openly with people who know you and know that you come from a good place. But when you go to a new area, you're still meaning positive and you still want to help, but you're a stranger to a lot of people that don't know you. And so you're right. Sometimes it's better to come in and kind of trust. Trust is so important in business. And then it's better to like, hey, maybe there are some changes that we could do, but it does take time. And I think a lot of people listening to the podcast will maybe think of a time they did that as well when they moved into a new role in a new country or or even a new segment or something. Something that was really interesting about you is that, you know, your dual career, your wife is also a very successful executive in the industry. You have three children. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you guys manage those responsibilities when both parents are ambitious and are both working and both careers are just as important, right? I believe at the time when you moved to the UK, there were some challenges on your wife's career because she wasn't necessarily able to work. You had to cut the assignment early to move because she was getting transferred and also just your own travel schedules because as you know, managing director and her being an executive, you have to be traveling, you have to be meeting with uh, employees, etc. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe some strategies or just what do you guys do to coordinate the family, you know, dynamic? Probably the most complex part of my life is to make sure that, you know, everybody's happy with that. And so is my wife. So that balance may feel unbalanced at the time and everybody got to know when is the time to, to kind of carry the weight. So I talk a lot with my wife about that. So whenever her job seems to be overwhelming, then I try to pick up some of the family responsibilities and vice versa. Whenever my job is really demanding, she picks up some of that work as well. So being flexible and understanding what's the right time to jump in and help and take extra work and putting extra hours of family time because family needs, uh, it's really important. We didn't have a family in the US for a long time, but more recently, my parents retired So they've been able to be here and help us every once in a while for a few months when we have a lot of travel that is scheduled. Or if I have travel at the same time as my wife, we rely on family to support too. And that's a big help because we couldn't do it without them. We'll have to probably sacrifice the professional life to be able to balance at home. But because we have the extra help, uh, it's a lot easier to keep both careers moving as fast as we can really. When the kids were younger, was there anything that helped navigate you through that stage that might be different than what you're doing today as they are older? I think we were lucky that the market wasn't as busy. So <laughs> both of us, you know, my wife had a job here in Houston and I had a job that was global, but I didn't require to travel as much. So we could manage that well. If now is the time that the kids were younger, we couldn't have the current jobs we have. We'll probably have to slow down and then, you know, just kind of take it easy and not in terms of effort, but in terms of travel. Mm-hmm. for a while. It would be really hard to have the current jobs we have traveling as much when the kids were younger. Now they're very independent. You know, my younger one is nine, then I have a son that's 11, and my older one is 14. And like they're so independent. If you look to all this stuff they do together, it's, it's really impressive. 
What I love though, is that there's always these different stages. And you had mentioned that, yeah, there might be a time when they're younger, where it's one in two years where you don't take a global role, but it's not like the rest of your life, you don't have the opportunity to do that. As they age too, they become independent and they really don't want you there. So at that point, you're like, well, I guess the global role really isn't that big of a deal, you know? And so I, I think it's important for people to know that the season that you're in, it's, you're not always stuck in that season. So, you know, your career will change as well, you know, as your kids grow too. So I think that that's valuable advice and just an understanding. So thank you for sharing. Just to add on that, you know, also communicating with my boss, with her boss, with the companies, like both companies have been really supportive of our careers. So when she used to work for TFMC when she was in Brazil and I was working for Oceaneer, we transferred to the UK. Then TFMC gave her like a, a license to stay as an employee, but be able not to work when we're in the UK. And then when you know we moved to the US, she had a job offer in the US. And then I told Oceaneer, say, my wife can move to the US working. Can I go accelerate my transfer from UK to Houston? And they helped right away. So having, again, that equity with corporation, with their bosses, make sure that they support your job, that they know about your family situation too. I know a lot of people don't like to share that, but we share very open, you know, where we are with our family. And when there's stresses, like I'm always open with my bosses. And that has helped us to move around with minimal stress at home. Thank you for adding that because there's a lot of people today that are listening that like to keep everything to themselves and very, you know, hidden and nobody knows about what you're going through if you don't share it. So I think it's very valuable advice. And that really takes me to a post that you did on LinkedIn. I've been so excited to ask you about this. So you had a credible opportunity you had with your daughter to experience presenting at the Girl Scouts event. And you posted about this uh, with your daughter present and attendees from Oceaneering as well. The impact and perspective on encouraging young girls to pursue STEM fields is really important to you. Can you tell us about this moment and also maybe some of the questions and stuff that the girls asked during the workshop? And the workshop was around building a robot. So the whole thing was very cool. And I'm so glad that you shared that with everybody on LinkedIn. It was a, it was a great experience, really. Very special. It was an event organized by the Oceaneering Women's Network uh, to support the Girl Scout on building their first robot. So we had a group of four or five of us from Oceaneering went there, you know, presented a little bit about, you know, the impact of women in Oceaneering. So we've shown like women wearing astronaut suits, you know, divers, you know, pilots and robots, technicians. It was a big spectrum of pictures showing all that they can do when they grow up. And then after the second half of the workshop with the girls was to really build this robot. And I was lucky enough to have my daughter in the team that I was supporting and seeing her and the other girls too at, at work and just the way they change their behavior. Talking specifically about my daughter, like at home, she is this nine-year-old girl just kind of running around playing you know, doing her stuff. But at that environment, she looked like a mini professional. So she was like, okay, no, this is my cup. I'm going to put these legs on this cup like that. And I'm going to tie the motor over here and asking very interesting questions. They felt very special. They're seeing how the kids can behave in a professional way on their own professional environment kind of helped me open my eyes about their capabilities and make sure that you know the next generation is just as good as the current generation. I think what I really liked about that post too is just the fact that they're doing these type of things to encourage girls to join the STEM world because, you know, I think without even knowing that could have changed even like your daughter's trajectory into what she thinks she's capable of because we've had other guests that mentioned that maybe their daughters or when they were younger, they went to an engineering camp for a week or a math camp or something and it truly just changed their mindset of, 
I could be an engineer. I could also be an astronaut. Things that maybe in the classroom or just in the rest of the world, what they see on TV or on YouTube, et cetera, they don't see themselves in those roles. It's always a guy astronaut. And so I think those type of events are super crucial in order to have more women in STEM, but also in the industry. There's quite a bit of events like that, you know, showcasing our industry. And that kind of leads us to the last question that we have for you as, you know, the Brazil country manager, you're in an influence position right? Everyone's looking up to you and you're in a position of leadership where you can affect change. And, you know, looking at the impact of the younger generation in the energy sector, it's definitely something that you've looked into. And also with having younger children in that teenage years that are the future, right? What are some things that maybe you plan to implement or you continue to support kind of like that diversity of thought throughout the organization and how to make this workplace and industry more attractive to that younger generation? It's an interesting place and position to be because the market's very hot. So there is really more work than we can manage, shortage for people. So, and then also a great, great culture to work with. Like the people from Brazil, they're very energetic. Even everyone from outside, if you need to bring an expat and then you'll say, hey, want to come do this job in Brazil for three months, they get very excited about it. So it's kind of very, uh, it's a privilege to be there at this time in this role, working with such a great team. When I think about what we discuss here today, like shortage of people. The many examples that I could see 20 years ago about how like younger people can be super competent at, at work, they may not have the same knowledge of risk. They may not have the same knowledge of contracts, but they're competent to do the work. So I'm trying to focus my guidance on those things, like where my experience helps de-risking the work for our customers, for oceaneering. At the same time, can I help accelerate the career of these young people that I'm looking at? Like I can think of four or five names of brilliant, brilliant people that work for us in Brazil that are probably 25, 24 years old. So how can I help them accelerate their career so they can deliver value and they take value without us taking more risk? That's definitely one of the areas. And the second one is how do we help promoting our industry among the younger people? Like we bring in interns every six months in Oceania in Brazil, and we see the quality is there, but we can't not get the same quality outside of, like if you go to developing countries, the level of interest drops a big deal. So how can we help our industry by promoting how what the benefits of working on gas, working offshore, supporting energy transition to it is all mixed, but challenging. But my priorities have been on the people, make sure that they get all the opportunities they can, that they can develop as fast as they can, while as my responsibility, protect the company, you know, make sure we protect the environment, protect our customers' business as well. Well, I think that we completely stand behind you in this mission. And Brazil is, like you said, there's so much great talent there and there's so much opportunity. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who are definitely willing to go and support. I know if I got asked to go to Brazil, I'd raise my hand. It always seems like this luxurious, like very cool, very beautiful countryside. But I know that's not how all the work environments are. But just for you to be focused on the younger generation and for you to share your experiences with them, I think it's just so valuable and important. And thank you again for coming on the podcast today and walking us through your journey. It's just so impressive to see somebody who started, you know, 15 years old selling dental equipment with his father to now running the business in Brazil. It's just such a huge feat and you have come so far. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you everybody for joining and listening in. If you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And we have some exciting news coming up. So remember to sign up for our newsletter and stay tuned for more. Catch you on the next one.